The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Um, we're going to go into our third message in a series, and I'm doing sort of the early church, um, the journeys of Paul. Today we're going to depart a little bit um, from following Paul, and we're going to deal with something um, that I think we need to deal with because it's happening at the same time, and that is the letter from James. And there's this other guy who's been following Paul around and trying to destroy Paul's work, and we're going to we're going to give him a name. It's going to be a fictitious name, but we're going to talk about him several times over the course of the series, um, and the series will be whenever we get a chance, whenever I get a chance to get up here. Um, so last month, we uh, did the second one. We started the second missionary journey. Uh, we talked about the uh, Jerusalem conference, and we're going to, um, we're going to continue from there. First thing I want to do, though, is I'm going to ask you to try to put yourself uh, back in the first century of the Roman Empire. I want you to kind of get into the context of this. Um, look at this. We've got a golden screen, and we have a white screen. That's cool. Um, the Roman Empire was an interesting, living, uh, unpredictable, colorful time in which to live. The Caesars ruled it with absolute authority. They were both revered and hated, uh, sometimes by the same people. Uh, they demanded allegiance from their subjects. They were not to be questioned. They were impulsive. Sometimes they made unbelievably bad choices. But they were the gods at that time. They were ruling. Um, another thing to remember about that time is that, and this is important when you understand what the people were looking for in a Messiah, there was a terrible conflict going on between the Jews at this time, the time of the uh, writing of the New Testament, and the Roman Empire, the Roman overlords. The Jews, for the most part, the average guy on the street, for the most part, was just biding his time, fully convinced that the Messiah was going to return, and when he returned, he was going to deliver them from the Romans. He was going to set up his eternal kingdom on earth, and the Jews, along with, Je along with the Messiah, whoever that would be, would reign over the Gentile dogs. And this is why the Jews wanted Jesus dead. He just didn't fit the mold. This is why they rejected him, and they rejected the early Christians. This is why they wanted to stop Paul. Paul was propagating this false Messiah in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, for many of them. A relatively small segment of the Jews accepted Christ as Messiah, and this was terribly bothersome to the more conservative majority who were waiting on the deliverer from Rome. Judas had been among those, among this majority, who was terribly disappointed. When he sold him out, I believe when he sold out Jesus, he felt like he was probably pressuring Jesus, pushing Jesus to reveal himself as the actual man who would deliver them from Rome. But, of course, that didn't happen. Um, Saul of Tarsus was of the majority who rejected Jesus and the early Christians. Um, many others felt the same way. Among the unbelieving majority of the Jews were this militant sect called the Zealots. These zealots held primarily to the same religious beliefs as the Pharisees, but were fanatical about their belief 
that they live under the rule of God alone, that no man would rule them. So they opposed Herod, and they opposed Rome, and they'd use whatever means necessary to overthrow them. It's traditionally believed that James, the brother of Jesus, was a member of the Zealots before coming to believe on Christ. Now, please hear me about this. Jesus raised up 12 disciples who became apostles during his earthly ministry. These men ministered exclusively among the Jews. That may not sound like an important point, but it actually is very important. He, they ministered among the Jews and the Jews only, especially in the early years of the church. It was some 15 years later, after Christ had died and rose again on the cross, that the first missionary went out and began preaching the good news to the Gentiles. This was scandalous among many of the Jews in Jerusalem, particularly among the zealots. And you may have heard of the splinter group of the zealots called the Sakari or the Dagger Men. Um, the Sakari were named after this uh, dagger that they would hold. They would hide underneath their cloaks called the Sakai. Um, they had gained a lot of influence with the Jewish people at this time. And they were not only anti-Roman, but they were hostile to any Jews who were thought to be building bridges to the Gentile world. So we're going to meet the Sakari a little bit maybe today uh, during this message, but we're going to meet them along further on in, as we go through the story as well, because they're after Paul. Um, we're going to discover later in the story that Peter and John and others of the Twelve were, would eventually embrace the gospel to the Gentiles and even begin preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, but not in the beginning. Early in the story, Paul is the only one preaching the gospel, what he called his gospel. He called it his gospel because he was the only one preaching it to the Galatians and to the Gentiles in general. And Paul pays a great price a very heavy price to remain faithful to the gospel that Christ gives him for the unwashed Gentiles. You'll notice in Galatians, in his letter to the Galatians, he says, you know, I'm not doing this of my own accord. I received a revelation directly from the Lord himself to preach this gospel to the Gentiles. Okay, so with that introduction, let's review just a little bit so we can catch up to where we're at here in the story. Um, there's widespread debate on the exact dates that Jesus died and rose again, uh, and it's not that important. I go with the annual Passover date in 30 A.D., so we're going to say 30 A.D. is when he died and rose again, and less than two months later, the church is born on the day of Pentecost. About three and a half years after this, Saul of Tarsus becomes a believer in Christ on the Damascus Road. Some 12 or 13 years later, in 46 A.D., the Lord calls Barnabas Barnabas and Saul to the work of planting churches in the new regions of the Roman Empire. Over a two-year period, Paul and Barnabas planted four new churches in the religion of Galatia. That's in the first message in this series. The cost of these two men was enormous, particularly for Paul. First, Paul's flogged with 39 lashes on the Jewish, of the Jewish whip on the island of Cyprus. Then he experiences shipwreck on the Mediterranean Sea, where Paul spends a day and a night in the cold salt water. Then, after rescue, he and Barnabas hike up the steep Augustan road over the Taurus Mountains where they're likely beaten and robbed by bandits on that trip. They also suffer greatly from flash flooding and cold and went without food and shelter. You get this out of 2 Corinthians. 
Paul and Barnabas do eventually make it to the Pisidian Antioch church, or to Pisidian Antioch, and they establish the church, a, primary, a church primarily made up of Gentile slaves. We covered all this in the first message. But after only three or four months in the city, the leaders of the synagogue and the city grow tired of Paul and Barnabas, capture them, beat them with Roman birch rods until they lose consciousness. They survive, but rather than return home, they press on to the next town, preach the gospel. So they plant a church in Iconium. And then again in Lystra, it's in Lystra where Paul is stoned and left for dead. Miraculously, he survives, presses on to plant a church yet in Derby before leaving to go back to Syrian Antioch. But as I've said now more than once, many in Jerusalem are not happy with the apostles' trip to Galatia. He and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem to defend his gospel. He gets an official nod from the church that his gospel is good for the Gentiles. But the purest among the Jews do not accept this. And some from Jerusalem who held to a mixture of law and grace visit the Galatian churches and undermine the work that Paul and Barnabas started there, such that some Gentile believers there get circumcised and begin observing the laws of Moses. Paul (laughs) responds with a fiery letter that he calls the Galatians foolish and the Jerusalem church backward and out of touch with the truth. Read Galatians. Wow, Paul is hot in that letter. And he says some pretty harsh things about the Jerusalem church. This letter becomes fuel to the fire for the zealots' case against Paul. Paul was obviously angry. When it came time to prepare for the second missionary trip, Barnabas insists on bringing John Mark again. Paul refused to travel with John Mark again. Remember, Mark had left Paul and Barnabas Probably on the first trip, probably when Paul was at his weakest. He was very weak. He had just received 39 lashes from his own countrymen on Cyprus. Then he survived a day and a night in the cold, salty water of the Mediterranean. Then they get to the shore in Pamphylia, and Mark says, I've had enough. And he's probably the young man who's carrying the bags for them and helping them out. And he leaves them. And now Barnabas wants to bring him again. Paul says, no way. They split company. Barnabas takes John Mark, and he goes back to Cyprus, and Paul calls on Silas, who's in Jerusalem, and he says, let's meet up in Galatia. And so Paul takes off to Pisidian, uh, to uh, Galatia. But this time, rather than travel by boat, he travels north, and he's going to stay on land. Don't blame him. So Paul sends word to Jerusalem to request Silas to travel with him. Paul heads north. He travels through Syria into his home region, stopping and encouraging churches along the way. Silas begins his journey toward Galatia from Jerusalem. Here's the point where we're going to stop for a few minutes, and we're going to talk about two other characters in this story that are very important to the story. We've got to talk about James, the brother of Jesus, and a letter he writes at about this time. And then we need to talk about an unnamed character in Scripture, that I'm going to call Simon of Jerusalem just because it's a good name for a Jewish leader at that time. He, you will not find Simon of Jerusalem in Scripture. But first, let's talk about James. Paul's on his second journey. First, I want to start out by making a confession here of sorts. Um, many years ago, I read Martin Luther, what he thought about uh, the New Testament and his thoughts on James, the letter, the letter of James. He was disgusted with the book of James. 
He couldn't find a way to reconcile James' doctrine, James' faith versus works problem. So when Luther completed his translation, he cut the book of James out. Good way to deal with it. It's just not in there anymore, so I don't have to think about it. He put it in the appendix to his own translation. For years, <laughs> I went back and forth wondering, maybe Luther's got a point here, because I couldn't figure out James either. Um, sometimes I believe it belongs in the New Testament, but maybe only as a historical piece, okay? It's a good letter. You know, James was wrong, but it belongs in the New Testament nevertheless. Um, Eventually, more recently, I came to the conclusion that James does indeed fully belong to the New Testament, but it's a mystery that I simply don't understand. More recently, in fact, actually this has happened since I've started coming to this church. Yes, this is a confession. I admit it. I've begun to study the book of James in earnest. And I feel like I've got a better grip on the book of James than, ever, than I've ever had before. And uh, I'm going to give you my take on it. And I realize this is my opinion only. Um, I bet Jim's got a better take. I haven't talked to Jim about this. I haven't talked to Walt about this. So please forgive me if you guys disagree. <laughs> um, tradition says that James was a zealot. I sort of buy into that. Um, I think he was. It looks to me that the more zealous Jews in the church in Jerusalem were putting pressure on James to be the one leader in the church to stay true to their Jewish heritage because he most likely looked a lot like Jesus. Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. He comes out of nowhere. He's not one of the 12. He's never really in Jesus' life during Jesus' ministry He just kind of comes out of nowhere, and we find him suddenly the big dog in the Jerusalem church. To me, this is a little confusing, but I think it's probably because he looks a lot like Jesus. He might even have some of the same mannerisms of Jesus. After all, they grew up together when they were younger. And he was a devout Jew. He had gathered a loyal following, no doubt, in the church in Jerusalem because When it comes time to make the decision on whether we're going to accept Paul's gospel or not, it's James who stands up. The 12 are there, but James is the one who stands up and says, here's what we're going to do. And the letter that he writes basically saying, we accept Paul's gospel, was written by James. So he just naturally rose to leadership in the church. When the legalist believers visit the church in Antioch with Peter, they don't go to the 12 and ask for a letter of recommendation, which was a courtesy, a common courtesy in that day. No, they seek out and get a letter from James. So James obviously carries a lot of weight here. James may have believed that the Gentile churches would benefit from the understanding of the law of Moses and the rich heritage of the Jews. Paul, on the other hand, believed the only thing the Gentiles needed to know about the law is that it came to make sin more sinful. The law came to expose the depravity of men. The law was enacted to drive us to the grace and mercy of God. That's what Paul's message was to them. 
Now, I've pointed out to you another message of the series. I don't believe the Jerusalem church leaders and Paul saw exactly eye to eye on the gospel. But that's not to say that the apostles reject, rejected the grace of God. They simply packaged it a little differently because they had a different audience, the Jewish audience. On the other hand, many Jewish rabbis and scribes in Jerusalem came to Christ bringing their law and their traditions into the church. So as the church got older and older along the way, more and more of the traditions and the law crept in. And these people did reject the grace of God for a mixed gospel of law and grace, which Paul makes very clear in his letter to the Galatians is no gospel at all. He clearly states that if anyone preaches a gospel other than the gospel he preached, let them be accursed. In fact, I believe it's Paul's letter to the Galatians, which by now has circulated all over Judea, all over Syria, Cilicia, and Galatia, that prompted James to write his letter. In order to understand James' letter, you first have to understand who he's writing it to. Then you need to understand why he's writing it. First, let's look at the who. The very first verse of the book of James, he clearly states in his opening words that he's addressing the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Not just the the Jews in Jerusalem, but the Jews throughout the Roman world. It's an open letter to all the Jews. Okay, so why is he writing it? What's prompted this letter? I'm going to tell you why I think he's writing the letter. But ultimately, I would suggest, and actually I'm going to plead with you a little bit, because this is how it first began to make sense to me. Read the book of James in one sitting. Just sit there in a quiet room, go outside, whatever you have to do. Take the book of James. It's, only, it's very short. Take it and read it all in one sitting. And actually do that a number of times. It was probably the seventh or eighth or tenth time. I'm reading it along, and suddenly it hits me. Oh, my gosh. I see what he's trying to say, or at least I think I see what he's trying to say. So don't take my word for what I'm going to say here. Let the Lord speak to you. I believe James sees himself and his kinsmen in a war of spirit and flesh. On the one hand, he's very familiar with the legalist believers who are preaching the mixture of law and grace. Even though he knows that's not the gospel, he can no doubt, just like you and I, identify with it. Doesn't it just make sense? Our flesh is so religious. I'm particularly religious. I grew up in a very religious home. I went to Bible college with a bunch of religious people. Um, And if you didn't go out and witness a certain number of times per week, you weren't religious enough. And everything was measured by the way we behaved and the way we acted. And especially us preacher boys had to do so much gospel witnessing, passing out so many tracts. It just fed my flesh like crazy. And my flesh got stronger and stronger, believing that it was impressing God somehow with with how hard I can work for his favor. On the other hand, James sees something else going on, okay? He sees that on the one side. On the other hand, he sees something else, and that's the exhausted Jews who are at their wits' end with the law of Moses, those who are being honest with themselves, those who see all these laws and say, I'm not measuring up. I'm exhausted. I can't keep up with it. There was a point in my life very early on, thank God, where I just said, I can't do this. And I wasn't even trying to do the laws of Moses. I was just trying to be a good preacher boy. 
according to the measures that we had. I'm exhausted. I can't keep this up. Imagine trying to keep 639 laws, some of which were impossible, even for the most religious person. In fact, that was the point. (laughs) Yes, they're impossible. You're not supposed to be able to do them. You're supposed to come to the end of yourself and throw yourself on the mercy of God. So they've been beat down by the law for their entire lives, and when they see Paul challenging the law in his letter to the Galatians, some of them lose their faith. You ever go along in your Christian life? I've had this encounter a couple of times where I believe I'm supposed to be a certain way or supposed to believe a certain thing, and then somewhere along my life, there's this pivot point that happens, this come-to-Jesus moment that happens, and I realize what I have been believing all this time is completely wrong. Completely. And instead of it being a moment in which I go, praise you, Lord, for giving that revelation to me, I do the opposite, and I go, okay, that's it. I'm out of here, and you just, I just lose faith. That's happened to me a couple of times where I just barely was able to hold on. Actually, it was the Lord who held on to me. So they lose faith, and some of them choose what I'm going to call easy believism. That requires really no saving faith or change of heart. Can you understand how a movement of easy believism could have spread among the beaten down Jews? I sure can. It makes perfect sense to me. In the same way that Paul just naturally had to write to the Galatians once he learned of their foolish response to the Judaizers, James had to address this new movement of easy believism among the 12 tribes. There's a great deal we could talk about here, and in fact, we could do an entire series on the book of James. Maybe Walt will just choose to do that at some point like we're doing with Hebrews right now. It would be good to go through the book of James in the same way and to see it from the viewpoint of grace. But this morning, I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to hit on a couple of things very quick. We're going to put up our first verse here at this point. Um, This is from James chapter 2. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Okay, what is James saying here? What's his point? And just as important, is his message in harmony with Paul, who writes in Romans 4, this is the next slide, If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. On the surface, it appears that Paul and James are teaching two different things. Let's go to the next slide. Paul writes, Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. James writes, You see then that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow. James, where are you? Martin Luther, I understand. What do we do with Paul and James? How do we reconcile these statements? How did Jesus, what did Jesus say to the people about Abraham? 
Okay, let's go to the next slide, John 8. If you were Abraham's children, you'd do the works of Abraham. This is Jesus speaking. Uh Uh-oh, here's that works thing again. Okay, next verse. Jesus says, slide 5, As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. The Jews thought they were special because they were Abraham's descendants. But Jesus said, if they really were children of Abraham, they would act like Abraham. So what did Abraham do that the Jews refused to do? What did Abraham do that the Jews refused to do? He believed God. Even when it seemed that what God was saying was impossible. In contrast, the Jews rejected the living word of God even as he stood right there among them. With Abraham being such a critical figure in the life of the Jews, it's important that we understand when Abraham was credited with righteousness. When was it that Abraham was credited with righteousness? Was it after he was circumcised in obedience to God's command in Genesis 17? Was it after he tried to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God's command in Genesis 22? No, actually, it was after he simply believed the Lord in Genesis 15 earlier. Paul writes in Romans 4, this is the next slide, Romans 4, 9 through 10, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited to him? Was it before he was circumcised? Was it after? Before? It was not after. It was before. So what works had Abraham done when righteousness was credited to him in Genesis 15? Only one work believing God. What work did Jesus say Abraham had done that the Jews had not done? He believed God. What exactly did Abraham believe? He believed that God was his shield and his exceedingly great reward. In other words, Abraham believed in and eagerly looked forward to the coming Messiah. He didn't see the Messiah. He was looking forward to him. He was believing We know this because Jesus told the Jews in John 8, 56, the next slide, your father father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Abraham was looking forward and believing in the coming Messiah. Now, this is obviously an important point to Paul. It's not circumcision that saves you, it's faith. James agrees that we're saved by faith, but he's making the point that it isn't just mental acknowledgement, but faith that accompanies a genuine change of heart. Faith that follows repentance. That's what James is addressing. Easy believism had crept in. In fact, the Jews had lost faith. We've been following the law all this time, and here comes this guy, Paul, saying that that's not it at all. That's not what we're about. We were never supposed to, be- to follow the law. We were supposed to let it make us fall on our face before God and, com- and confess and tell him we can't do it. And we've been saying this, my fathers, my grandfathers, my father's fathers, all this time for thousands of years, we've been following as if it was something we were supposed to do to gain his favor. And they've lost faith. <clears throat> John 6, 29, the next slide. 
Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Paul explains in detail what Abraham's work was in Romans 4, 18 through 22. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and that's Sarah's womb was also dead. And he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he'd promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. What are the works of Abraham? They are believing and being fully persuaded that God will deliver on his promises, even when all else says otherwise. When was Abraham fully persuaded? It was in Genesis 15, when God credited him with righteousness. When did we see evidence that Abraham was fully persuaded? Later on, in Genesis 22, when he tried to sacrifice Isaac in obedience to God's command. And that's why James writes, You see his faith and actions were working together. But God saw Abraham's faith seven chapters earlier, and he was credited with righteousness back then. So why is this significant, that James is writing to his Jewish kinsmen? Because being Jews, they already knew that Abraham was credited righteous when he believed. They knew the Torah inside and out. Many of the Jews had memorized the entire Torah. Paul had. So why did they need to be reminded if they memorized it, if they knew it? I believe James is writing to this epidemic of unbelief. I'm calling it easy believism. In fact, it's simply unbelief. The popular view today is that Paul wrote about faith and James wrote about works, and it's up to us to balance the two teachings. But brothers and sisters, there is no balancing grace and works. What men call balance, God calls mixture. You're either resting in faith or you're engaged in works. The issue is not faith versus works. The issue is faith versus unbelief. God gives us faith for a reason, that we might reveal him and his will in in this world. When believers step out in faith, heaven comes down. When they don't, nothing changes. Faith that doesn't move you is dead. Here's a paraphrase, not my paraphrase, but here's a paraphrase of James 2, verse 14. Another slide. What does it profit, my brothers, if someone says he's fully persuaded regarding God's promises, but then does nothing about them, never steps out, never takes a risk? Can such faith make any difference in his life? Can it save, heal, or deliver him? The truth is that you can't mix God's grace with anything. Jesus went through unimaginable suffering on the cross in order that we might be redeemed from the condemnation of the law. To act as if we could somehow make ourselves righteous in our own strength is to reject as insufficient his perfect sacrifice and suffering and insult the spirit of grace. Let's be clear. The works of the flesh nullify the grace of God. They don't mix. And if by grace then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. That's Romans 11. So the essence of James 2 is this, I believe. A believer isn't one who merely believes God in his heart. The difference between you and your unsaved neighbor is not 
just a set of beliefs. It's the life of Christ in you, revealed through you. You not only think differently, you act differently. And what you do flows from what you believe. We haven't been called to do works for God, but to do the works of God. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. And if you're fully persuaded that Jesus is our wisdom from God, that he is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, our victory, it'll be evident in how you live. And I think this is what James is addressing. Now, there's so much more we could talk about James about, but we need to move on because there's another person I need to introduce you to. So let's go back to our journey. So Paul starts his second missionary journey by meeting Silas in Galatia and picking up Timothy to be his apprentice and bag carrier. I believe Paul wants to go into Ephesus, but the Holy Spirit has other plans and prevents him from Ephesus at this time. And they end up in the Roman colony of Troas, a name derived from the ancient city of Troy, whose ruins are right set out the city of Gates. While waiting, Paul plants a church in Troas, and shortly thereafter, Luke shows up. We don't know exactly how. We talked about this a little bit last time. But Luke becomes a part of the team. Then the Lord speaks to Paul in a dream and tells him to go to Macedonia. So the men travel to the Roman colony of Philippi and plant a small church there. This is where Paul and his team meet Lydia. We went through this story last month. After Paul cast demons out of a slave girl, he and Silas are arrested, beaten, thrown in jail. After a miraculous earthquake happens in which all the doors of the prison are broken open, but nobody's injured, nobody escapes, the jailer and his household become believers and begin to care for Paul and Silas. When authorities arrive the next morning to, at the jail to escort Paul out, Paul refuses and reveals that he and Silas are Roman citizens. Terrified at their horrible mistake, which could get them all executed, city authorities listen to Paul's single demand. The city is to protect the small church that Paul's leaving behind from greedy merchants and anyone else who would harm them. And that's how Paul and Silas leave Philippi, having established a church, small one, in the Roman colony of about ten to 15,000 people, probably a church of no more than 20 or 30. They leave Timothy and Luke behind when in Philippi to encourage the fledgling church and to witness that the city authorities do indeed protect them. So... It's really important to note here that Paul and Silas don't have much money. We, know, we learned this a little later in Acts and also in Paul's letters. At this time, they leave Philippi. They don't have very much money. In fact, they may have almost nothing. The two men had hoped to be able to earn some money in Philippi to travel, but it didn't happen. Now they had to travel to the big city of Thessalonica. Ten to 15,000 people in the city of Philippi, 250 to 300,000 in the city of Thessalonica, Huge metropolis compared to where they had just come from. And they had to go there and find work. And they had to find it quickly. Okay, so remember at the beginning of this message, I told you, we had two characters to discuss. One was James. Now I'm going to introduce you to another guy. This guy is a mystery. This guy could be just a figment of my imagination. I admit that to you. I don't think so. Scholars, New Testament scholars bounce around on this guy. Some of them, and by the way, he's not, I'm not, he's not original to me. I picked him up reading some of the scholars. There is no doubt somebody or some group of people who are following Paul around. This part is pretty much universally accepted to destroy Paul's work. Paul continually refers to them. 
In fact, I believe when he refers to his thorn in the flesh, he's referring to this person or this group of people who are trying to destroy his work, following behind him. He went to Galatia, and then this guy went to Galatia with his group and tried to convince them that Paul was a fake and a sham and and you need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. That's what prompted Paul to write his letter to Galatians. He goes on his second journey, and he's probably up on his way to Macedonia, or maybe by the time he's in Macedonia, and this guy's come behind him again and has been Galatia a second time. And he's following Paul, and he's trying to destroy his work. I'm calling this guy Simon of Jerusalem, just to give him a name so we can refer to him easily as we go through the story. He's, he's a zealot, in my opinion, perhaps even a, a member of the splinter group of the dagger men. He not only wants to destroy Paul's work, he wants Paul dead. <clears throat> this guy is probably a very charismatic character. He's able to persuade people to follow him and to believe him. He's probably a devoted Pharisee. Uh, before becoming a believer, maybe still is, came to faith sometime in Christ, probably in the Jerusalem church, maybe at the witness of James, may have been a friend of James before they had become believers. These legalistic believers are just as devoted to the law as Paul is to the gospel of grace. This is particularly true of Simon. Simon has decided that Paul must be stopped at any cost. At this very moment, as Paul is making his way to Thessalonica, Simon is hatching a scheme to stop him once and for all. Simon has decided he'll follow Paul wherever he goes and preach the true gospel that includes includes circumcision and the law. It's Simon who led a group of legalistic Christians into Galatia, and it's Simon who's now following him on the second journey. As Paul and Silas leave Philippi, this, I want you to understand, how many times now has Paul been beaten? Has he been shipwrecked? Has he been whipped? Has he been stoned? He's now on, he's leaving Philippi, and he's on his second journey, and it started out the same way the first one did. He was beaten and put in prison in Philippi. I want you to understand that Paul is struggling in ways that we can't understand, in ways that even Luke and Silas couldn't understand. Paul has hit a wall physically and emotionally. We can see this from his letters, from things he says. We can, we can see between the lines with what Luke is writing in the book of Acts. He knows his message and his revelation of Christ is real. He spent three years alone in Arabia with no one but his own black heart and Jesus Christ. He saw the revelation from Christ himself. He knew he would suffer. That was made clear to him from the very beginning. But Paul is now doubting his own ability to continue in the perceived onslaught of pain, both physically and emotionally, that comes from repeated ejection from city after city as he travels and preaches the gospel. Thessalonica was about 90 miles southwest of Philippi. Paul and Silas travel alone. Luke and Timothy stayed in the Philippi to minister the church there. As these two men make their way to Thessalonica, Paul continues to struggle with his pain and exhaustion. His body is in desperate condition. The pain is indescribable. He's suffering probably from nerve damage, from the repeated beatings. And let's, let's make another thing clear here. 
every time he gets another beating, the person beating him, the master of the synagogue or whoever it is, sees that he's been beaten before. So he's obviously a troublemaker wherever he goes. And they get even worse, the beatings on him, because he's a repeat offender. So he's in an emotional and spiritual crisis as well. The pain in his chest from the burden of the churches is so heavy. He writes about that burden of the churches. It's like he talks about the labor pains from what he's done to, to found these churches. And then, on top of all of that, he leaves them without a pastor and really without any mature believers there. This time, he happened to be able to leave Luke and Timothy, but only for a very short time. They're not going to stay there long in Philippi. With the Galatian churches made up primarily of slaves, he left them with no one, which is why he went back after going through all of them, appointing elders. But guess who he's appointing elders from? Three-month-old believers. That's who the elders were with no scriptures that hadn't been written yet. They've got the Old Testament, maybe parts of the Old Testament, but most of them are unable to read. They have no New Testament scriptures. Now they've got the book, the letter to the Galatians, but that's it. So Paul's hitting an emotional wall, a spiritual wall, and a physical wall, all because of his burden for the churches and knowing that there's this person or group of people coming behind him who know the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, by heart, who are charismatic speakers, powerful leaders from the Jerusalem church with a letter from no less than the brother of Jesus himself coming in and saying to them, Paul meant well. He didn't give you the whole gospel. Can you try to identify even slightly with what Paul's going through? Paul felt like if he was going to be beat again, he'd die because he's already almost there. Paul knew his God well enough to know that he was in control. He served a sovereign God, and he trusted him. But he couldn't understand at this point, what are you doing, God? And later when he's in Corinth, he'll come to this place again, and he will come to a place to where he can't speak anymore. Anybody remember this? In, the, in one of his letters to the Corinthians, he's the, he says that the Holy Spirit came to him and said, it's okay, I'll protect you. You will not get beat again in this city. And that's when he gets up and speaks again. He's going through stuff that's hard for us to identify with. Fortunately for Paul, there were inns all along the route between Philippi and Thessalonica, so he's able to stop and rest in an actual bed, probably with terribly raging fever on top of everything else, probably nerve damage, which kept him almost blind. I'm saying all these things because I want you to feel as best we can what Paul's going through. Paul has no hard evidence that Simon's on the move, but he believes it. He just feels it in his bones, and of course, he's right. Um, Okay, let me try to move on here and finish this up. This time, when Simon gets to Galatia, he has no audience. Paul's just been through there a few months earlier. 
and the church is strong. And they, this time, do not listen to Simon, best we can tell. But Simon is no, and in no way deterred from his goal. So he begins sending out letters to the synagogues all over um, that area, um, what we now call Turkey. And he probably sends them on into Macedonia, believing that that's where Paul is headed at this point. And he would send it to Ephesus, Ephesus, and he would send his letters all out, warning people of Paul and his messages and what he's trying to do among the uh, synagogues there. He's also visiting any church that will give him an audience, trying his best to undo what he considers Paul's damage. Okay, I'm going to stop there, actually. This is a good place to stop. Um, the next, time, next opportunity I get, we're going to go to um, Paul's founding of the church in Thessalonica, which is an amazing story again. And then we're going to go into Berea and try to get into Athens. We'll see how far we get. I'm going to call the band up to lead us in a closing song of worship. If you have anything you'd like to talk to one of us about, to Jim or to myself or any of the brothers or sisters here in the church, please uh, feel free to do that. Let's pray. Dear gracious Lord, you are the author of grace and peace. You have blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. You chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. You set us apart to be your sons and daughters according to your own pleasure and will, and you've lavished upon us your glorious grace. Lord, open our eyes so we may see you in all your glory and power. Renew our minds so we may see ourselves the way you see us. It's all in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.